morning, Highland. Uh, my name is Shane Hughes. I'm one of the ministers here. It's good to be with you. We're in a, a series on the Sermon on the Mount, but the, the season that we're in is the season of Lent. And uh, we encourage you, if you came to Ash Wednesday or if you've just been around, to figure out what's the baggage you got to leave behind. Uh, the season of Lent is a time of intense spiritual focus. Now, we're going to do our best to follow God every week of the year, every month, every season, but Lent is where you work especially hard to focus on what God is calling you to do and how do you, how do you live into that promise. And the reason Lent works is because you put yourself in a posture where you can more closely, more clearly hear God. And so this year, we encourage you uh, to ask the question, what do I need to leave behind? What's creating drag in my relationship with God that I don't need? And my guess is, if you're about this spot in Lent, you've like, you've blown it by now, right? Like you, you, for, you were going to give up soda, and you forgot, and you drank a Coke, right? Or you were going to give up uh, anger while you were driving, somebody cut you off, and you got frustrated in that moment, right? You were going to do, be more kind, and then all of a sudden you weren't. And once you like, you know, you break the streak, it's hard to... Put it back. It's hard to do it again. And so this is about the time where most of us give up on those kind of habits. But Lent keeps going. So I want to encourage you to, to renew your practice. To try again. Dust yourself off and recommit yourself to putting yourself in the posture where God can do mighty things to you and in you and, and through you. We're on the Sermon on the Mount today. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 38. Hear the word of the Lord. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. If anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, give your coat as well. If anyone wants you to go one mile, also go the second mile. Give to the one who asks of you, and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. You've heard it was said, love, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and on, on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you only greet your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing? Don't even Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The word of the Lord. You remember last week we were talking, we're still in the Sermon on the Mount, we were talking about, we were talking about lust that becomes adultery and adultery that ends up in divorce and, and, and really what the whole thing was talking about is, is covenants. That you let your yes be yes and your no be no. And at, at the beginning of that text I said something and I wanted to hold it very carefully because Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, cut it out and throw it away. Because it's better for you to enter into heaven with one eye than end up both-eyed or two-eyed in Gehenna. And if your arm causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away for the same reason. 
And I said to you, I want you to realize that this is hyperbole. Jesus is using an extraordinary situation to make a point. He's not using it to make another law. So preacher, since the Sermon on the Mount is about hyperbole, I mean, this is about hyperbole too, right? I mean, this isn't what something Jesus actually wants us to do. I mean, come on with me. Just follow the logic here. If we follow what Jesus actually said, we're going to be the ones that are trod on. We will be helping our enemies. And we will be seen as weak, and they're going to come back and take from us again. Surely this is also hyperbole. We can't take the words of Jesus seriously. I mean, is this something we have to do? After all, if the Crusades or bombs and abortion clinics, the genocide in Germany or Rwanda is evidence, or even the, just the flags sold on the corner of Danville and South 27th, which combine the cross, the American flag, and a slogan to destroy our political enemies, which, by the way, have the same cross and the same flag, we have decided collectively, no. We don't have to listen to Jesus here. Jesus wasn't serious. But the deeper this week that I dug into this text, the more I am certain that Jesus does not agree with us here. And the reason why is because God wants you to try. The Sermon on the Mount is not designed to be this means by which you discover grace by trying so hard that you fail. God wants you to try. Even the desire to please God pleases God. You're going to fail. You're going to mess up. You're going to drink the Coke on accident. You're going to get frustrated when somebody cuts you off in traffic. But God wants you to try. Because Jesus did. But this text takes it a step further because God doesn't just want you to try. God wants you to be perfect. And if you know Greek, then you know what I'm about to say, that there's a sense in which perfect here means it's best translated as mature or full-grown. It's like when you hit your adult height and your prefrontal cortex is all done cooking and you are full-grown. When a tree is able to produce fruit, it is full-grown. And it's not perfect in the sense of without error. It's the perfect in the sense that it's complete. Although, you would expect a mature player at anything to make less mistakes than the rest of us. I've heard it said that the Olympics are a collection of two types of mutants. It's those whose physical bodies lend themselves to certain abilities. Michael Phelps has the wingspan of a condor, right? That's why he can swim so fast. Simone Biles has the combination of incredible core strength and the fact that she's only 4'8 and only weighs 104 pounds. So she can flip her body in a way that taller people cannot. There's something about their certain abilities that make them exceptional because of their, their DNA. But their DNA alone doesn't get them to the Olympics. They also have, what they also have is a lifetime of practice. Getting up at 4.30 a.m. in the middle school to train. Spending hours and hours 
working on their craft to the point where their swing, their turn, their stroke, their throw is so much a matter of muscle memory that if they thought about it at all, they would be worse than if they just did it by rote. And I wonder, are we committed to ourselves? If we committed to ourselves to be the spiritual athletes, the spiritual Olympians of this city, so that mercy and love, wisdom and service were such gut instincts, I think we would pretty much change our families. I think it would transform our city. I even think it would change our world. See, you see, perfection isn't the accumulation of good deeds and restrained actions and pure desires, although that's a piece of it. Perfection is a state of being. And if Jesus is to believe, it is our birthright. So let me make this whole text simple. There's only one thing you need to really need to do. There's only one thing Jesus is trying to say in this, this part of Scripture. He just says it six different ways. And there's a brilliance in the way he wants to say it. But there's only really one thing to do. When he starts, he says, well, eye for an eye. And actually, he's quoting from Scripture here. And, and, and in Leviticus, this is originally limited to prevent generational feuds. Because if I took your eye, you might come back and take both of my eyes. And if you blinded me, I might want to come back and take your life. And if I took your life, then your family may want to come back and kill my family. And if my family was killed, my village may want to come and wipe out your whole entire community. And you see how this goes. It's the Hatfields and the McCoys. And it's not an accident that the Hatfields and the McCoys found themselves in Appalachia and not in New England. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell does this fascinating research into this idea. It's because the McCoys and the Hatfields came from the highlands of Scotland where they were herdsmen and shepherds. And people in New England, although they did have fights and squabbles and killed each other as well, for the most part, there was not that kind of feuding that happened because they mostly came from southern England and most of them came as farmers. And farming is very different than herding. When you farm, you need to partner with your neighbors because you're going to need help to build a bigger barn. And when the crops are going to come in, you're all going to have to participate together, cooperate to bring the crops in in time. But if you're a herdsman, if you run cattle or you run sheep, you have a product, a commodity, that's very easy to steal. It's honestly pretty difficult to get up in the middle of the night and steal 100 acres of corn. But it's not that hard to take 100 sheep. And so herdsmen had to learn that they had to defend themselves to protect their flocks. Not only from wild animals, but from thieves. And if you got the reputation of being weak, they wouldn't just kill, come and take one animal. They would take them all. And so Jesus says, it's not just eye for an eye. There's got to be something more. He goes on to say, if somebody strikes you on the right cheek, and, and most of the world is, is right-handed, and so if you're going to punch somebody, you're punching on the, the left side of their face, but if you're going to strike them on the right cheek, that's, the, that's a backslap, that's an insult. It's not violence. Jesus says, if that happens, just let them hit you again. 
And this isn't so that you're a doorstop that just gets beat on. It's because you know who you are. You are a child of the Most High King. What, what can insult you if you know who you are? And it hurts when you get insulted. But only for a little bit. And then he moves on to, to shirts and cloaks. And, and, and it seems like he's performing this kind of spiritual jujitsu in the first century. Again, he's pulling from the law of the Old Testament. And, and the law said, look, if, if someone takes a loan from you and they offer their garment as pledge, because their garments were probably the most expensive things that an average person owns. That's when people tear their garments in grief. It's not just a statement of I'm feeling sad. It's an economic move. It's total devastation, right? And so if somebody pledges to you their shirt don't take their cloak and the reason you don't take their cloak is because they're going to need that that's what they use to sleep in at night when it gets cold and so Jesus says look if someone's going to come and try to take your shirt give them your cloak as well and it's kind of this spiritual jujitsu in a way because what it does is it puts the onus not on you as someone that owes something but them as a taker. They're taking more than what they're supposed to. And you're going to walk away from that encounter and you're only in your skivvies but they're going to walk away with something else. It'll put them over the edge of the law. And then he says instead of going one mile go two. And this isn't a reference to the Old Testament at all, but rather a Roman law that said that the, the soldiers were allowed to force a person to carry their kit, their backpack, for one mile, but only one mile. And if, if first century ports are anything to be believed, the soldiers didn't really honor that. They would make you carry it as far as they, uh, as they wanted to, because they had the power and you didn't. And so Jesus says, when you're in that situation where someone has power over you, the one thing that they can't take is your dignity. So if you're going to seize anything in that situation where you are powerless, seize your own dignity. And you see the power of this in the 20th century. In the civil rights movements of civil disobedience and sit-ins where people refused to give up their dignity and it changed things. We still have a ways to go, but it changed things. But even for the original readers, and I'm thinking of the, the first century Jew living in Judah or Galilee, it's not often that these situations are going to occur. I can't remember the last time I got in like a, a slap fight, um, and I, I haven't been sued in a really long time, and I've never been forced to carry someone else's, someone else's backpack. And although there are, there are staff meetings or social media po posts where you might feel insulted because somebody's making a power move, and, and in that situation, you're going to have to decide what to do. And there are going to be times where institutional power or pocket dictators are going to try to take from you, and you are going to have to decide what to do. And, and, and then Jesus speaks of these ways of like, ways of taking kind of back dignity and taking back power and there's, there's wisdom there and there's regaining what it means to be human and owning who you are but this is not why we do it Jesus doesn't offer this as self-help so that you can manage difficult situations better this is not why we behave this way we do this because this is what Jesus did you can draw a straight line from his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount to the way that he behaved at the Passion when, he was, when he's being crucified 
I want you to remember that one of the last things that Jesus said is, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And if you don't have the trained eye, if you don't have experience of living in Scripture for very long, you may think that it was the Romans who crucified Jesus. You may believe that it was the power of Jerusalem that put him on a cross. But you forgot the song that we sang when I was a kid in my church growing up. Jesus could have called 10,000 angels, destroy the world, and set him free. Jesus could have pulled an ark move and taken his 12 disciples and started over. No one took Jesus' life, but he laid it down as a sacrifice for others. Jesus could have chosen vengeance. He chose self-sacrifice instead. But I told you, you don't have to keep track of whether or not you get slapped twice. You don't have to keep track of how you act when you're sued. This is all you have to do. This is the only thing that you have to do for today. The biggest issue of all of these is love your enemy. And this is actually, it's an impossible demand. I mean, this is what makes them an enemy, right? We don't like them. You could even say that in a much stronger way. We hate them. That's what makes them the other. I mean, honestly, what's the difference between a friend and an enemy if you love them both? Oh. That's what Jesus is trying to say. Uh, but to be honest, those who perpetuate violence ruin things. They always have and they always will. Just ask my two older sons how they feel about my youngest son getting near their Legos. People who perpetuate violence ruin things and such violence makes life untenable. It systematically not only destroys the only peace but the sustenance of life itself. These perpetuators of violence cannot possibly be the persons whom we need or are willing to show love. And perhaps this is the key to Jesus' message. Those who perpetuate violence are the very ones we need to love. Not for their sake, but for ours. And I want you to hear me carefully. Jesus is not saying, love your enemies so that you might evangelize to them and make them Christians. Although I've heard stories about that happening. Jesus is saying, love your enemies because when you hate your enemy. It doesn't corrupt their soul. It corrupts ours. This teaching isn't for us to do effective evangelism. This, teaches, uh, this teaching is for us to do effective soul care. While they may need to receive the love of Christ that has been placed in our hearts, it is perhaps more important that we as followers of Christ offer God's love. It is the action of offering God's love that is transforming for us. We are called to an active involvement in spreading the love of God to the lost and to the least. And those who are lost in the spirals of violence, of poverty, and poverty of body, mind, and spirit, they require continuous exposure to the, that the love of God offers renewal and change. Because, see, the reality is the enemy holds the Imago Dei in their body. But if you hate the Imago Dei in their body, 
you get to the point where you can't even see it in yourself. It blinds you to yourself. And so maybe it's a good spiritual practice this, this season of Lent to lay down my right for vengeance. To just trust that God's going to take care of it. Because me holding it is more dangerous than me exercising it. I want to tell you this truth. Sometimes you run across, as a preacher, you run across stories in the week that you're preparing for the text, and it's this strange work of the Spirit. And this story, I, I heard this story today. It was from my friend Casey. My, Casey, my friend Casey, he, uh, he works over in the Houston area, and, and he has a son named Gatlin. And uh, Casey's wife just moved teaching positions, and so she transferred from one school to another, and they just decided it'd be easier if all their kids that were going to the first school transferred with her to the second school uh, because it might be just easier for commute in the morning and all those things. And the second school was not a safe place for Gatlin. He's in the second grade, it's the same age as my oldest son. He's in the second grade, and there were some real serious bullies at, the, at his school. So much so that um, he was surrounded in a bathroom, him and four other boys, and they beat him up, bloodied his nose, hurt his body. And of course, immediately Casey and his wife go to the administration and they say, we've got a problem and, and you've got to deal with this. But the administration was either unwilling or unable to deal with the problem because it happened again less than a week later. Gatlin is caught in a, in a space where there's four people around him and he gets beat up again. And so Casey decides, I'm not going to let this stand. I'm not going to let this happen. And so he's, he's pulling his son out of that school. They're going to put him back in the school that they came from. But in the meantime, in that brief period of time between uh, when he can transfer him, he sets his son down and he's talking to him. And he says, um, uh, Gatlin, uh, this is what I want you to do. The next time that you're surrounded in a bathroom and there's nobody there to help you, uh, I want you to take that Stanley water bottle. And he had this like, you know, two-quart aluminum Stanley water bottle. And he said, son, the next time they do that to you, I want you to take that water bottle and I want you to swing it as hard as you can at the biggest one of those guys. And then I want you to run. And he said, if you hit them with your water bottle, I won't punish you for it. And Gavin looked at his father and he said, dad, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to hurt them the way that I got hurt. I'm not going to do that. And I thought to myself, you know, if second grade Gatlin can get this, I can get it too. In a season that's coming that is going to look like there are more political enemies and actually they're your neighbors right next to you, I can get this too. I don't have to live the way the world does. I can live the path of Jesus. And I think that might just change our families and change our church. I think that could change a city. Maybe it could even change the world. Let's stand and sing.